Welcome back to Labor Law Radio. I'm Michael Tracy, your host. We're picking up uh, the topic from the previous uh, half hour on uh, veterans' reinstatement rights after they come back from a period of uh, military leave. So administratively, if you have any questions or want to uh, review the broadcast uh, later, there are online copies and there's a form submission where you can submit questions via email at uh, www.laborlawradio.com. Alternatively, you can give us a call toll-free 888-678-7229, and uh, we'll be happy to answer your questions as long as they're uh, uh, amicable to be uh, answered on the radio. Sometimes people give us too much information or too little information, and I can't get to those. But uh, if, you, if you do send them in, uh, we cover them, uh, cover them as we get them. So, okay, where we had left off was if you were a military service member, you went on leave, a military leave, and you come back from the military. That is, you went on leave from your job to uh, perform active duty service, and now you're returning from military leave from your job and, and want your job back. So while well, we said you do have to timely notify your employer that you want your job back, uh, you know, on the next day, if it's a less than 30, 30 days or less of uh, military service, if you're gone from uh, 31 to 180 days, then you have two weeks, 14 days to notify the employer. And then if it's more than 180 days, you have... Uh, you know, basically 90 days in order to uh, notify the employer. But you do need to promptly tell them that you want your job back. And then when you do return to your job, you are entitled to the same job that you had as if you had not left it. And we had talked about how that's commonly referred to as the escalator principle. That is, you know, you're progressively moving up your uh, in the corporate ladder and just because you went on military leave, it doesn't mean you have to freeze your uh, your advancement with the company. And that gives rise to a, a lot of complexity because, you know, if you're just gone for 30 days, it's pretty straightforward that you return to the same job that you had. Chances are inside 30 days, there wasn't going to be any huge promotion or anything that you get inside the, the company. But what it does mean is that any things that are connected to your length of service in the company you still get that 30 days of service that you had uh, that you were in active duty service applied as if you had been working in the, in the company this comes up a lot in union jobs and things like that where there are very defined pay grades that go along with uh, your apprenticeship you know sometimes you're apprentice level 1 apprentice level 2 and eventually you're a journeyman or something like that and those are usually tied to you know the number of months in service or the number of years in service and if that is the case, then the 30 days that you spent on military service, any time that you spent on military service, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, that all counts towards you know, achieving your next promotion that you are going to get. Now, so in, in unionized jobs or things that have a very defined hierarchy in terms of how people move up, it's very easy to determine exactly what the job would be had you not taken the active duty service. Um, Unfortunately, there's a lot of jobs that don't so easily qualify for that. So if you don't have this defined hierarchy, but it's more nebulously defined where most people in the company usually get a promotion after two years, it's a little harder to quantify that in terms of what your benefits are. But you are entitled to, you know, anytime they do take that consideration, the time you spent on military duty is considered part of your employment history and it is not uh, deducted from any seniority system or anything like that. So some places have scheduling where uh, people are entitled to overtime or if there's going to be a layoff, it's based on seniority, then your military time 
counts as time worked for that employer in terms of determining that uh, that seniority. And that's why it's uh, referred to as the escalator system. Where it comes into play, you know, re- relates to, you know, how long you were uh, uh, you were gone because obviously, if let's say you're on on leave for a year, the exact same job that you had may no longer be available, or you know, giving you that promotion uh, for one year's worth of qualifications may you may not be qualified for that job. So the employer does have you know certain exemptions to the general rule that you you're on the escalator and you're going to get back off exactly as if you had not performed you know exactly as if you had been working on the job rather than performing your military service and that is if the employer can show that you really aren't qualified for the new position that you would be entitled to and that there's no easy way to quickly train you up for it then they don't have to give you that exact same position but if it is something that you could easily be trained up for um, but you're simply, you know, lacking, let's say, a one-week training period or something like that, then the employer would be obligated to to train you up for that. Now, for this reinstatement right, there is a magical line at the 90-day mark that determines whether you're entitled to the exact same position or simply one that's substantially similar. So if you served 90 days or less, your reinstatement right is into the exact same position that you had um, with your seniority as well, uh, unless the, the job no longer exists or the employer can always show that it would be you know, impossible because that uh, position was eliminated, then that doesn't apply. But for the vast majority of the cases, you know, the position is still there. And if your service was less than 90 days, 90 days or less, you're entitled to that exact same position as if you had never gone on your active duty uh, service. If it's more than 90 days, then the employer has to restore you either to the exact same position. They always have the option to restore you to the exact same position as if you had not gone on your military service. Or they can restore you to a position of substantial similarity in terms of job duties, status, pay grade, you know, all the things that make up uh, the position of employment. And if all of those things are so substantially similar to the position that you had left, um, as if you had uh, not gone on active duty military service, then the employer can give you this uh, this new and different job that is has substantially similar uh, job characteristics in terms of status, seniority, and pay. And that magic line in the sand is at the uh, at the ninety day mark. The other thing that uh, you have are what benefits you continue to accrue while you're in active uh, service, as well as what you're entitled to once you get back. So the rule there for your benefits is in terms of pension and other guaranteed uh, plans like that, it's the same thing as your reinstatement rights. Your pension must continue as if you had not left employment. That is, your active duty military service is viewed as time of employment in terms of qualifying for pension, in terms of pension contributions that the employer makes. They have to continue to make those uh, pension contributions while you are on active duty service. If it's a employer matching and the employee needs to contribute into the pension plan or a retirement system, then the employee has the right to catch up or to uh, you know play makeup with those uh, with those benefits. The employee still has to contribute their proportionate share of the benefits, but then the employer also has to contribute uh, contribute their contribution as well. So that is usually applies just to, you know, to pension plans and things like that. There are also issues with health benefits, and this the magic line is at the uh, is at the thirty 
day mark. So if it's 30 days or less of active duty service, your health benefits need to be uh, continued by the employer as if you still work there. They can't cut them off. They still have to pay them. If you were making contributions to pay for those benefits and you continue to meet, need to make those contributions. After 31, 31 days or more of active duty service, it's essentially the same thing as when you leave a company. You are entitled to a COBRA benefits. That is, if you wish to purchase the benefits from the employer, you do have an absolute right to purchase those at the same price that the employer was paying for them. Uh, That is, if the employer was contributing to the benefits. So basically 30 days or less, all your benefits are covered. So if you're in the National Guard, uh, Army Reserve, and you're doing your two-week summer training, then your health benefits automatically continue. If you get called up for a longer deployment, then you have the right to purchase those benefits, but they don't have... um, you know, they don't have to pay for them just like uh, as if you had uh, COBRA benefits. So, um, you know, that's basically it for the benefits. Uh, the other interesting thing that comes up is that once you are, once you come back and you are reinstated, the at-will doctrine ceases. This is one of the exceptions to the at-will doctrine. We've talked at length in previous broadcasts how all employment in California is at-will that is, the employer can terminate you at any time for any reason or no reason at all, unless it's one of the protected uh, characteristics such as age, race, gender. Simply, if they don't like you, they can terminate you without uh, without any reason at all. There is another exception to that, and that is for returning uh, military service members. So the rule for this is that once you go on your military duty and you come back and the employer complies with their their reinstatement obligations and they give you your job back with the same seniority and the same pay as if you had never left. They can't simply then turn around and fire you the next day and say, well, this is an at-will state. Everybody in California can be terminated at any time for any reason. I listen to Michael Tracy's broadcast and he tells us that over and over again, that employers can terminate you for any reason as long as it's not uh, one of those protected uh, characteristics. We're firing you because um, you have short hair, and that's not a protected characteristic. So we're going to uh, we're going to terminate you. Now, in any other context, uh, the employer could fire everybody in the company with uh, short hair, as long as that wasn't a pretext for, uh, let's say, uh, African Americans or something like that. Uh, it's not a protected uh, characteristic, the length of your hair. Um, presumably, you know, there may be gender issues there. So I mean, maybe it's a bad bad example that I chose. But uh, well, you know, the, say the. Uh, didn't like you because you're Lakers fans. I like uh, firing all the Lakers fans and you're a Lakers fan. And they say, well, we're firing you in any other context, perfectly legal to fire you. Uh, but if they had just reinstated you because you were a returning service member, they would not be allowed to terminate you unless it was for cause and for causes never really defined anywhere. But basically it means some type of willful misconduct on part of, on the part of the employee, something more than simply uh, you know, showing up for, for work late one minute on one day or, uh, you know, not doing a, a outstanding job. You basically have to, you know, either systematically break the rules, do something blatant. If you, you know, destroy company equipment, steal something, you know, lie about uh, some important thing in the company, then that would be for cause. And it, usually it's pretty clear cut. It's either something, you know, pretty big and it is for cause or something trivial. And that is that is not for cost. But anyway, the rule is returning service members cannot be terminated except for cost for a period of up to 180 days if their service was 180 days or less. So if you just go on your uh, two week uh, uh, summer training or your your uh, six week uh, deployment, then and you you come back, then 
that is uh, you do have a right not only to reinstatement, but also for continued employment up to 180 days unless you uh, do something extremely bad for the company and then they can terminate you for, for cause. If your deployment was for more than 180 days, then basically you have a period of one year from the time you're reinstated that they can't terminate you except for cause. And the reason for that is should be pretty obvious, and that is obviously if they comply with the reinstatement, then under the at-will doctrine, they could terminate you at any time for any reason. And there would simply be too many cases where they could simply terminate the veteran and say, well, it will, you know, this is an in at-will state. We can terminate him. So he's not entitled to, to anything. We did reinstate and we did comply with the law. But two days later, we decided to, uh, to terminate him. So, you know, that's basically it. I will say that one other issue that comes up in this area is that if while you are deployed, the company downsizes or your position is eliminated completely, then in those cases, they don't have to give you your job back. It's sort of like the uh, the reverse escalator, just as you are entitled to your job as if you had never left going up. That is, you're entitled to a pay raise, you're entitled to increased uh, pension benefits, you're entitled to uh, increased seniority. You also have to take the bad with the good. And if the bad is that everybody in that job classification was laid off or the company shut that uh, division down or that plant down, then the job that you would have had had you stayed at the company wouldn't exist either. And when you return, you simply get what you would have had as if you had never left. And that is essentially you're out of a job because either way, had you stayed or had you gone on deployment, you'd still be out of a job. So there is that case where the company has laid off a large number of people and you're not entitled to your job back, even if there's a job available somewhere else in the company. That's not really a, that's not the employer's obligation. So, okay, that should cover the reinstatement rights and the other rights for uh, service members that relate to the, uh, the job pool market that's, uh, that's out there and, and uh, service members who are working and getting deployed and wondering what their rights are. So that, like I say, that area, not a lot of litigation in there. If you know what your rights are and you know how to find out what those rights are and present those to your employer, 99% of the time the employer is going to comply with that law. If not, you can use uh, uh, the government attorneys for the for your respective armed services. They will help mediate the dispute with the company. And ultimately, I've done it in, in a couple cases to help uh, to help people you know, explain it to their employer but uh, very rarely ends up in, in litigation. So that covers that. If you do have any questions, uh, feel free to, to email me frequently. I can answer very quickly to you and point you, you know, to the resources that you need, even though I don't handle a large volume of those cases. So, okay, moving on to the next subject. The next subject is veterans benefits. Now, this doesn't have anything at all to do with labor and employment law. This is simply an area of the law that I practice uh, sort of as an extracurricular activity. You do it on a pro bono basis. That is, there's no charge to the uh, the veteran for the representation. There's only so many cases I can take on. And I can tell you these cases are very, very difficult. And they are very, very uh, somewhat sad, I guess. It's, it's very uh, uncomfortable to see what uh, some of these people have gone through, the difficulties that they've had to deal with in dealing with the Veterans Administration and the uh, uh, the government in terms of getting their benefits. And frequently, they're extremely complex. So the last case I had uh, had taken had a stack of medical records over three feet high, and it took uh, quite a few hours to go through them all to find out what the uh, 
Veterans Administration had overlooked and what they had mishighlighted and the terms they, they had completely miscategorized what was a doctor's opinion versus what was simply a, a layman's statement and that had uh, directly adversely affected this uh, veteran. But going through that entire record was uh, extremely time consuming. But this segment is going to talk a little bit about what those benefits are, what the process is for them. And we're not going to get too much into the law in this area because it is very case specific. So it's really just uh, designed to point veterans in the, uh, the right direction in terms of how to you know, prosecute their claims in order to get their, their benefits and to inform the rest. I read a lot of people who listen to the show may not be veterans and may not have any interest in applying for veterans benefits. But it is very interesting to see what is available for veterans, what the process is, and what some of the problems are with the existing system. Like I said, this isn't about Walter Reed and, you know, benefits for current active duty service members that there's a, there's a ton of issues in that area and it has certainly a lot of problems, but that's not something that, uh, you know, you can sue the government for or that you can uh, appeal to a court of law for in, in most cases. So what this has to do with is people who are applying for benefits usually well after their service has ended. So a lot of the cases that I deal with are for Vietnam era veterans who have just recently encountered some type of disability that was somehow caused by an event that happened back in their military service. So usually for these types of veterans benefits, they are years, if not decades after the actual injury or incident occurred. And it's proving that your current medical condition is related to that uh, to that uh, disability or injury that occurred in service. You know, if you were injured directly in service and had some type of severe disability, that would be taken care of at the time of your discharge. And there's not uh, there's not a whole bunch of issues, legal issues, in terms of determining what that was. I mean, what their determination is upon your discharge is usually going to be binding on you. This is for things that come up well after your discharge, and you're trying to relate them back to your military service. So with that said, you know, there's really two levels of this benefit. There's one that's sort of called compensation, and there's another one that's called pension. And the compensation is primarily what we're going to be concerned with here. And that is that if you were injured in service and later you suffer some type of disability for that, and the classic one for this, and I'm going to talk in depth about it a little bit more later, is Agent Orange. So if you were subjected to Agent Orange exposure back in Vietnam, you may not have experienced any disability or any uh, indication that you had suffered an an injury from that for 10 years or 20 years or even 30 years after the fact. And then suddenly you're diagnosed with uh, some type of cancer and you find out that was caused by your Agent Orange exposure. That is a classic example of a compensation benefits program that is going to cover that type of injury. And what it means is that you're essentially being compensated for that disability. So depending on how disabled you are, if you're 10% disabled, you get 10% of the benefits. If you're 50% disabled, you get 50% of the benefits. If you're 100% disabled, well, you get 100% of the benefits. So it's sort of on a sliding scale for your disability. And all it's designed to do is compensate you for that injury that you suffered while in service. The other type is a pension benefit, and that is more of a needs-based program. That is, even if you weren't entirely disabled while in service, if you later become disabled you know, from other causes that aren't entirely related to your service and your income is below a certain level, you can receive these pension benefits 
and they're, they're much less than compensation. There's a far fewer number of people that actually uh, receive them. And I'm not really going to talk about those because they're much more of a needs base rather than, you know, medical evidence based. And that's what uh, we're going to talk about today. So in terms of the, uh, the numbers of people that receive these, um, you know, basically about 2.5 million veterans receive veterans benefits under the compensation program. There's, there's roughly 2.5 million uh, disabled veterans to some degree. Uh, usually it's a, the minimum is threshold is 10%, uh, you know, all the way up to 100%. So there are quite a few. It's 2.5 million uh, disabled veterans that are receiving benefits from the government in terms of compensating them for an injury that they had uh, sustained while in service. Well, the pension portion of that, which is more the needs-based analysis, is a much smaller number, about 300,000. So roughly one-tenth the number of people receive pensions, receive compensation. That's a, another large reason why we're just going to talk about uh, the compensation uh, portion today. Now, the most important thing about receiving your benefits is to file your claim as soon as possible. So even if you don't have all your evidence together, it's very important to file a timely claim. As soon as you suspect that you may have an injury that or, or disability that was related to something in service, you should file your claim with the uh, uh, your regional office as soon as possible. Uh, the reason for that is that the way these benefits work, well, first of all, the big reason is the average waiting time to have your initial claim adjudicated is, I believe, about 450 days. So you're going to wait a year and a half just to get your first decision back in terms of whether you're denied or whether you're uh, you're going to receive your benefits. So the biggest reason to file it immediately is it's going to be a very long time before you hear anything back, and these claims are very backlogged. The other reason is that your benefits can only start as of the date you filed that claim. So even if you had experienced these symptoms before, even if you had thought that they were related to your military service, even if you had a doctor tell you, well, this cancer that you have was probably caused by Agent Orange, until you file that claim, the government cannot pay you those benefits. And what it means is that they can retroactively go back to the date you file that claim, but they can't go prior to that. So I've had a number of people who have received uh, service connectivity and received their benefits, but the issue was that they weren't going back as far as they had the disability. And as obvious as it was that the disability was in existence prior to filing their claim, and as obvious, it, obvious as it was that had they filed that claim, they would have had an extra two years of benefits the law is what the law is, and the government cannot go back prior to that uh, initial date of filing your claim. So it's very important that you, uh, that you file it right away. The next thing that you need to understand with this process is in order to prevail on your claim, and let me talk a little bit about the statistics about these, these claims. There's roughly uh, about 34,000 claims that are filed each year for which a decision is made. There's about 40,000 claims that are filed a year, and about 34,000 of those have decisions made on them within a given year. So each year, there's about six to 8,000 cases that just go on the backlog. And that's been increasing. And you know, given the current uh, military deployment situation, that's likely to uh, continue to backlog as these, uh, as these claims come in. Like I said, the Agent Orange was a very big thing. Now, the Gulf War complex syndrome, which I, Gulf War syndrome isn't really a good term because it's actually a, a, a complex number of varying 
uh, syndromes that, uh, that that come up in there, but that is becoming a, a rapidly increasing uh, number of claims that, that are being filed per year. So in any case, uh, we have uh, 34,000 of these decisions filed each year, and of those, 38%, the veteran is denied benefits. So almost 13 to 14,000 veterans every single year have their uh, benefits claims denied. And unfortunately, of those, roughly a little less than 4,000, 3,700 file for appeal. And that's where an attorney like me would assist is on the appeal side of those. So it's really only 25% of the people who are denied benefits a file for an appeal to uh, receive, you know, to have a court overturn the uh, Board of Veterans uh, Appeals determination that the veteran isn't, uh, isn't entitled to it. Surprisingly enough, of those that file an appeal, almost 77% have the BVA's decision overturned. It's a Board of Veteran Appeals, you know, the person, the, the agency that made that determination. So in terms of appeals, you know, in civil court, appeals are a losing proposition. It's, you know, in federal court, it's about 15, 20 percent. In state court, it's maybe 25, 30 percent of appeals will overturn the lower court decision. So if you're taking something up on appeal in civil court, you have an uphill battle. It's a losing proposition. But if you're appealing a veteran's decision, then you have a good likelihood that it'll either be overturned outright or at least remanded back to or that is sent back down to the Veterans Administration so that they can gather more evidence, conduct a more thorough, or at least give you a medical examination to determine whether these claims were service-related. So, I mean, statistically, you do have a lot of uh, uh you know, you, you do have a, a good chance of having your uh, benefits granted if you have a valid appeal and then you want to pursue it. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't pursue it. And of those roughly 4,000 people that do pursue it, uh, almost 60% of them did it without an attorney. And that's not always the best thing. But because of the uh, the complexity and the cost and everything like that, there's not a bunch of attorneys that do it on a pro bono basis. So that's... Uh, that's the situation that we are in. So what is important is to try to win on your uh, initial case. And to do that, you have to put together as much evidence as you can. So the law says that the uh, Veterans Administration has to assist you in presenting your claim and, and gathering evidence uh, to uh uh, to establish service connectivity for your disability. But if you're relying on the Veterans Administration assisting you, that'll get you so far. They're not the worst thing on the planet, but it's not going to be sufficient in most cases. So what you need to do if there's any issue with a service connectivity or you think your, your claim might be, you know, a questionable one or one that the, that the BVA might deny, it's very important that you get your own private physician to give you a diagnosis and determine uh, two things. One, that uh, you have a current diagnosis of a, a disability, that is you have at least 10% disability in, uh, of something. And whatever this, uh, whatever this disability is, they have to relate it back to something that happened in service, either an injury or incident or something that happened in service that, uh, that caused that, uh, that disability. So unfortunately, I am uh, out of time again. I've gone a little bit over. I will have a bunch of this information up on the website. I did want to get into more of Gulf War Syndrome and Agent Orange. I'm not going to have time to get into that, but I will put some links up on the website for service organizations that uh, that help you with these claims and for resources that you can have if you, uh, if you submit a claim. And uh, hopefully that's a benefit to you. So, okay, that's all the time we have for this week. I will see you back next week. Thanks. 
podcast has been a commercial advertisement of the office of Michael Tracy. Not meant to be legal advice and does not serve to establish an attorney client relationship. Any statements made during this broadcast are also swear or not guarantees any outcome. Michael Tracy is licensed as an attorney only in California. 